Welcome to Conversations with Women and Hollywood. I'm Melissa Silverstein, your host. We talk with the women creatives who are making things happen in the film industry. Women in Hollywood educates, advocates, and agitates for gender equality in Hollywood and the global film industry. For daily updates on what is going on, please read us at blog.womeninhollywood.com. Also make sure to check out our resources at womeninhollywood.com. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can also find us on SoundCloud. Happy holidays and welcome to Conversations with Women in Hollywood. To close out 2016, we have a conversation with one of the writers of the terrific film, Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures tells the story of three African-American women who work at NASA in 1961 and are instrumental in getting people, men, to space. And it is such a terrific movie and I'm so excited to have the conversation with Allison Schroeder. Hidden Figures opens in New York and L.A. on Christmas Day and will open wider on January 6th. Equilateral, trapezoid, isosceles, tetrahedron. I have never seen a mind like the one your daughter has. You have to see what she becomes. Come on! Like that. Hey, Catherine, we all gonna end up unemployed riding around in this pile of junk. You're welcome to walk the 16 miles. Oh, sit in the back of the bus. <laughs> you kiss me up. You have identification on? We're just on our way to work at NASA, sir. I had no idea they hired. There are quite a few women working in the space program. Hmm. You know what we're doing here? We're putting a human on top of a missile, shooting him into space, and it's never been done before. I need a mathematician that can look beyond the numbers. Math that doesn't yet exist. Before the Russians plant a flag from the damn moon. You have someone? So today, in our conversations with women in Hollywood, our guest is Alison Schroeder. She is the writer of the awesome Hidden Figures. Welcome, Alison. Thank you so much for having me. Oh. Love that movie so much. Like, I think maybe my favorite movie of the year. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, it just, just hit every single one of my buttons that I love. And uh, it was so empowering and just super good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been crazy, the response. It's been, it's been really exciting to hear. So. so the film hasn't even opened yet. Tell me a little bit about some of the exciting things that have been happening. I think the most exciting thing for me has been high schools being so interested in it. So I did like an interview for my hometown high school paper and the kids are tracking it and there's talks of like field trips to see the movie and Google's very into it and the White House is very into it. And so that response has been incredible. It feels very unique for this film. Uh, and especially mothers and daughters are, you know, going to go to this film sort of as an event together. Well, why do you think... I mean, it, it's resonating in this way. Is it because we don't see these kinds of stories about women and particularly African-American women? Absolutely. I think that's a big part of it. You know, when Donna Gelati and I first started this project, we were trying to think of another film with, you know, science female lead. And literally we came up with Love Potion number nine. <laughs> um, 
So I think it's just so unique. And then it's not just one woman, right? That's right. a lead surrounded by a bunch of male um, actors, but three. And every time I pass the poster, I just think, God, it's really happening. Like just the poster alone is sort of incredible, right? It's yeah. three black women yeah. Yeah. holding a poster. Super smart uh, women. Yeah, super smart women. And then there's a spaceship, you know, a rocket behind them. Yeah. And and then I think also it's a happy ending. Yeah. I think that's something we also don't get a lot. And the movie is very true to these women's stories. And in real life, it, it never got too dark. You know, the racism and the sexism that they were up against was very specific. And I think very timely to racism and sexism we have today. Um, but it doesn't get into the, you know, they, they weren't lynched. They weren't attacked. Uh, uh, this was a very different type of, of movie in that respect. And so I think it is something that people want to go see and feel just very uplifted at the end that people did the right thing. I think that's what I love about this movie is in the end, people did the right thing and we don't see that enough. Right. All right. We'll come back to the racism and sexism a little later, but tell me how you got to be involved in this film because your writing credits were um, <laughs> not, uh, you yes. know, not plentiful. <laughs> and I mean, that, I mean, everybody no, has a first, but talk, talk a little bit about what made you special and how you got involved in this. Well, I definitely had sort of been pigeonholed in teen comedy and that was what I could get hired for. I think they just looked at me and, you know, I'm sort of a blonde, scrawny thing. And they thought, well, yeah, she can write prom and that's what she can write. But in my own time, I would constantly be writing specs that were much different. And I would do a variety of genres from post-apocalyptic to period thriller to mystery. Um, so I just wasn't giving in to this pigeonhole. And I sold uh, an Agatha Christie action film to Paramount. And that was ultimately the sample that Donna Gelati and Renee Witt read. And mm -hmm. Renee Witt knew my manager from their time together at a previous company and called him up and said, do you have a woman that can handle science and math? And he said, I have a female writer that worked at NASA. And that was me. Um, and so from the first phone call, uh, you know, Donna jokes that I said I was born to write this. I'm not sure I was that cheesy, but I definitely, I grew up at Cape Canaveral. My grandfather worked on the Mercury capsule. My grandmother was a software programmer, computer programmer at NASA. You know, I would visit them. And then in eighth grade, I was recruited by NASA into uh, a math and science program. So I spent high school interning there. So this was a world I knew very well. And I studied math at Stanford and um, came up against a lot of pushback by various people for me being a woman that was studying math. So I knew this world and Donna and Renee sort of listened to three scenes I pitched and they hired me, you know, off that one phone call. I mean, it was one of the fastest hirings I've ever had. And I think ultimately I was just, they knew the backstory was right. They knew I could handle the math and I was the right price. Right. <laughs> the right price. And you yeah. know, they wanted a woman, clearly. I mean, yeah. that was something that, that they said, yeah, we have a male director for this. And did they look at women, well, do you know? Well, we didn't have a director, uh -huh. actually, at the time. We just had Donna, Renee, Margot, who hadn't started the book yet. It was just a book proposal. So we were writing simultaneously and me. So it was really the four of us 
wait, that wait, 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 what? So the, <laughs> so the, yeah. book, the book wasn't even done. Donna bought, the, bought it off of the proposal. Correct. So it was like a 45-page book proposal. And so Margot, thank goodness, was super generous and just dropboxed all of her raw research to me. So I was doing, I was reading through, you know, hundreds of documents the same time that she was doing her own research. And we talked, that was in October of 2014. And uh, so then Margot and I sort of, you know, went back and forth with me asking her some questions. And then I went off for 12 weeks to write the first draft. 12 weeks. Uh, Wow. Yeah, 12 weeks. So I turned it in in January of last year. And then, you know, we did notes with Donna, Renee, and, you know, Margot looked at it and everything. And then um, I did another draft. And that was it. That was the the draft. They were like, okay, this is it. This is good. And that's when we sent it around town uh, in the summer of last year. And that's when um, Ted Melfi and Fox 2000 came on board. Okay, that's probably the fastest story I've ever heard of anything getting made. It is the fastest story, and I think it's a testament to that this is an incredible true story. These women are amazing, and everybody that hears about it says, oh, my God, why don't we know this? This, We have to make this movie. Right. And that's what happened. Wow, so the movie helps the book. The book helps the movie, and everything's coming out at the same time. So, So talk about why, I mean, people will be hearing this, the movie comes out on Christmas Day, is that correct? Yes. Um, and then it goes wider in January. So it'll be New York and L.A. over Christmas, and then it'll go wider where everybody can see it, hopefully yes. coming January. So talk a little bit about why these women's stories are so important. And before you tell, did you know about these women when you were at NASA? I did not. I knew the women had played a much larger role than most people realize, but I knew nothing about these three women. So you're working at NASA and there's still, and there's no, you didn't go to the Katherine Johnson building or anything or had been named yet or anything. It had not been named yet. It's named now, but I was certainly surrounded by women, you know, employees at NASA. So I didn't really think much of it. You know, it always felt like a very inclusive place and NASA itself did interviews with all these women and was definitely recording the history of this. So NASA recognized these women. It just didn't get recognition by the rest of the world. You know, they. Right. mm -hmm. And you didn't know that there were the three African-American women also. Right. I did not know. Okay. So talk a little bit about why these three particular women, because from the movie, we know there were many women. Right. Including women of color who were working at NASA. And so these three women, how does their story kind of rise up? From all the other stories. I mean, even when the other computers would talk, these three were the ones that were sort of renowned and uh, revered within the color computers and the regular computers. So I think they always stood above the rest. Katherine Johnson, probably the most recognition. She got the Medal of Freedom last year. And the story of Glenn, John Glenn saying, look, I don't trust the new IBM newfangled technology. I want a human to run it. I want that girl to run the numbers is true. He actually requested actually said So you he used actually the word, said it. You use the word computers and colored computers. And I think, you know, here we're in 2016. Nobody understands right. that people were called computers at NASA. Is that That's correct? right. That's right. They were literally doing the computations and they were computers before the machines existed. So essentially it all started, you know, after the war that, 
the men didn't want to sit in these rooms doing these long computations that took days and days and days. And so the women were recruited from the colleges. And there was also a bit of a shortage of men during the war. So there'd been a precedent set for hiring women. Mm -hmm. So they would sit in these rooms with their slide rulers and their very old fashioned calculators. I mean, we would, we would laugh at the, the lack of ability on these and they would do computation after computation all day long for the men. And so there were, the computers and the colored computers. And that was literally the classification that they were given and they were segregated um, rooms and segregated pools. And that's where Catherine Johnson worked. But these women would then be outsourced to the engineers. So she was ultimately sent to work in the space task group. Everything that happened in the movie, you know, she was brilliant and she figured out all this math and John Glenn only trusted her and he wanted her to run the numbers. Now in the movie, it takes, you know, it looks like it takes her about three hours in real life. It took her three days to run the numbers, but it actually happened. So we had to tell that story, right? So that was immediately like, okay, she was the genius behind the math. Clearly she's one of our characters. She is still alive. And her request was, look, if you're going to do a movie about me, it can't just be about me. There was a team. There were these amazing women. They need to be heralded to. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of amazing women in Margot's book, but it had to be narrowed down. And ultimately, Mary Jackson and Dorothy Vaughn, who were her you know, peers at that time and who also had some incredible accomplishments during the John Glenn period. Mary Jackson was the first female aeronautics engineer in America. I mean, that's crazy, let alone at NASA. And then Dorothy Vaughn was the first black supervisor. And she then saw the coming technology and, you know, became the head of the programming group and sort of saved all these jobs and was known as just a whiz at programming. Hmm. And that's how these three ladies came to be. And from the very first draft to the final cut of this film, it has always been a love letter of friendship and women lifting each other up and pushing each other onwards and being supportive. And that has never changed. And neither have their arcs. Their arcs have always been the same too. And there was a quote that I took out of a piece that said it uh, about Catherine Johnson saying to you that it was a love story to feminism or was it to women? I mean, she just said, please include other women than me. Mm -hmm. I was not alone. This was a team effort. And so from the beginning, it was a love letter to feminism. It was a love letter to female friendship. Um, Just the idea that I don't think we see women supporting each other enough on screen. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big push of this movie. And this takes place in 1961, just the beginning of the civil rights era. And you see, not only do these women have to fight the sexism, but they have to fight the racism, whether it was overt, I mean, it was all there. They couldn't go to the bathroom in certain places. They were talked down to. It was very, very clear that there were a lot of obstacles for these women to have the successes that they did. Yes, very much so. Yeah. So my other question for you is, you're also an engineer, is that correct? No, no, no. I was an economist uh, for... A few years. I I have a degree in economics from Stanford, and then I worked in finance doing, like, Excel financial modeling for two years. Got it. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So what made you go from Excel financial modeling economics to film school? I always did both. So my my dad was the engineer. My mother was the English teacher. So I grew up doing math and science, and I also grew up writing. So my second major at Stanford was 
film and writing. And essentially, I just needed to make sure that I was ready to be a starving, struggling artist. So I paid my dues and did my time in finance and saved up enough for graduate school, mm. honestly. And then I went to USC Film School and um, joined the ranks of starving artists. Okay. We'll come back to starving artists in a moment. So <laughs> I want to go back to John Glenn for one second because my sure. understanding is that he was great on, you know, with Catherine, but he also was, I believe, the person who, like, scuttled the whole, like, women astronaut program, right? To Nixon? Uh, I don't know enough about who scuttled that. I know that it was very controversial, the female uh, astronaut program, but I'm I'm sure it was more than one person that did that. Yeah, well, when he, de- when he passed away, my Facebook page was just like, yeah, he's awesome, but he did this, too. So I really yeah. want to, you know, it's... It, it, it's Everybody, it's very interesting to hear all the different pieces of the, of course, of, of a person. Okay, so my next question for you is to talk a little bit about women writers in yeah. Hollywood. So I know you also want to direct. Um, yes. And so that's super exciting. And a lot of women get to direct when they write something. Right. Um, but last year, only under 12% of the writers in the top grossing movies were women. Yes. And you are involved with trying to change that as a co-chair of the Women's Committee at the WGA and also being a part of the diversity advisor group. So talk a little bit about being, you know, what you what efforts you're doing and why it's mm-hmm. so important to you. Well, I think I think it's very frustrating uh, to not have a shot the same as the men do often uh, to write and direct. And it's something I see often. Uh, and I people haven't been willing to take a chance on me directing, whereas they have sort of inexperienced men. But I went I went to, you know, USC production program directing. I directed theater for years. You know, I've done shorts and ultimately I just wasn't gaining any traction and I didn't feel a lot of support in school. And so I thought, well, I'll write my way to directing and television is a great medium to have more control. So that's, I just sold a pilot. So, and I've executive produced my own series because I do want control because I believe, you know, you can bring your vision from the script to the screen to life better often than other people. So I was very isolated as a feature writer And one day went to the women's committee meeting at the guild and thought, okay, this is a community. This is a group of people that we can really band together and make change happen. And so along with my co-chair, Elizabeth Martin, and my vice chair, Lauren Hynek, we've just been trying to do a lot of programs. So we've teamed with Google. We've teamed with the Gina Davis Institute. um, I've gone and spoken at the White House. And then we do events. So we'll have a competition and the sort of top scored scripts, six TV writers got to meet with six showrunners in comedy and then in drama. And we had an event where we teamed up uh, women with, I had finished feature screenplays with female directors. And we essentially did a night of speed dating to try and make collaborations. We've done that for two years in a row. Um, we do events where people come in and they give you advice on how to pitch. And then we brought in executives from the studios to meet with our female members. And then we've also done outreach on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and so the, what we have realized in the past few years at working with the Women's Committee at the Guild is people need to get in the room together. 
that's the bottom line. We need to cut out the middleman. We need to cut out the agents and the managers. And you just need to be in a room together to make that connection. And so that's been the first step. And the second step now that we're working on, though, is we need to get more women to join our group and more women to participate in these events. And we need to do it across the board. We need to do it from new writers all the way up to our high-level writers in order to really make change happen. And have you noticed when you cut out the middle person in this that people are getting hired? Yes. I think that we've had – they're definitely getting read and they're definitely getting meetings. I think some showrunners – will tell you they're also stifled in their ability to hire diversity and female writers just from the people giving them their edicts. But it's definitely led to some hiring and it's definitely led to our members getting in the room to pitch their ideas and pitch their shows, which are opportunities they wouldn't have had before. And then with the directors, I believe there were six partnerships that were created last year and they've been going out and, you know, working on the scripts and trying to sell them and and making relationships with producers. So I think the other big thing is it just reminds executives or showrunners that when they say there just aren't any women to hire, and then we invite them to a event where there are anywhere from, you know, six or seven qualified women to 50 that they're right here. But you know when they say there are no women to hire, that's, we all know that's bullshit that they just keep getting away with saying that for some reason. But you know, how do you make systemic change? This is the key. Well, I think you take away their ability to say that. So when you Mm -hmm. shove them in a room with 50 women, it's a lot harder to keep saying that. Right. Do you think um, anyone in Hollywood is, uh, has any nervousness related to the EEOC investigation? I haven't felt it, to be honest with you, no. no. That's what I, I, I really want to know these things because I think this is important stuff. Um, and do you think that people who make the decisions in Hollywood understand and care about the lack of opportunities for women? Or it's think, just business as usual? I think it depends who you talk to. Okay. There's definitely been places where it's business as usual, and I have been flabbergasted. Mm-hmm. at the things that have been said to me in meetings. I mean, just gobsmacked and think, wow, is this really still happening? Mm-hmm. And it is. It absolutely is. But then there's other people who are very, very interested in making change happen. And it's interesting to watch them fight. You know, it's a lot of these female producers that have been in the industry for a long time, and they're just continuing to fight the good fight. Mm-hmm. And I can see them hitting these walls and the frustration. But then there are also strides being made and there are absolutely male producers that are interested in female storylines. I mean, it's been fascinating to me with hidden figures because I didn't even qual. I am, I am still not qualified for health insurance, which means that you have to make $32,000 within a four quarter period to get your health insurance through the guild. And even though I have hidden figures coming out, I have not qualified for that. Whoa, so, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes. So, you were really cheap then. I Well, I was really cheap, but I was just paid, and I wasn't that cheap, okay. but I was paid so long ago uh-huh. that I was paid like a year, two years ago was the last okay. time I was, you know, paid for writing services, not bonuses, but writing services on Got hidden it. figures. So I haven't qualified. And so I think that goes to show how hard it is to get work in this town. But suddenly now with the buzz of hidden figures, now, of course, I'm getting meetings and it's really exciting. And it's, I 
think every single project I've met on is a female lead, Mm -hmm. is a female protagonist. Mm -hmm. And they're so desperate, like, you know, we're just, we've had trouble finding female writers and we really want these stories told and they're so important. And of course it's like, well, I've been here. I've been here for eight years in this industry. But I do think that there's a difficulty in finding female feature writers. And again, the language of we've having difficulty finding women writers. I hear that over and over again. So you just had a, a daughter, your first child. I did, yes. And one of the things that I hear consistently and persistently from women is the kind of double standard about families mm-hmm. and how difficult it is for women to stay on the track, uh, mm-hmm. especially for directors where people automatically pigeonhole them. And I think in agencies also in their mindset, which is kind of like, are these people going to be long-term earners for me? Do I want to keep right. them on my roster? So talk a little bit. There's a a, a program in, in England called Raising Films where women and men are really trying to, you know, make people aware of people to have kids and they should be able to be in the movies um, or right. TV. So talk a little bit about kind of um, if you have any experience with that and in terms of I saw your interview in the Hollywood Reporter Roundtable and you were <laughs> very pregnant. And I'm sure they all must have, you know, their jaws must have dropped. So talk right. a little bit about like, um, you know, going through this whole process of, of releasing your movie, being pregnant and and being a new mom. Yeah, I do think it's different being in features than television. I think in television, you're beholden to your showrunner in their hours. And I know for some women, it's a great experience. And I know for some women, it's a very hard experience. And so that's on a case by case. But for me, you know, I didn't tell people I was pregnant. As a feature writer, I could do a lot of phone calls and conference calls and negotiations without anyone ever seeing me. And I did feel like I was a little... I needed to switch agencies, which is a, is a big thing. I think you need an agent that is advocating for you, that believes in you, that's not pigeonholing you. And when you say you want to direct, you want to produce, you want to show run, you want to sell a TV show, you want to do network, you want to do cable, you want to do features, you want to do big temples, every genre, you don't want to just do one and you want to do both award movies and blockbusters. They need to not flinch. They need to say, okay, great. Yep. And it's hard to find an agent that won't flinch. And I did. And I'm very, I'm very happy right now at Verve. And I think I actually continue to surprise them a bit with about how core I've been even since giving birth. Um, and I was, I was supposed to do a photo shoot for hidden figures the day my water broke. So I did not slow down, Mm -hmm. you know, but it doesn't mean it hasn't been hard. And I would show up to meetings super pregnant. I think people would be startled, but it, they didn't have a chance to form an opinion. And they were suddenly just in a meeting with me. And, you know, it's up to me to impress them or flop terribly. So far, I haven't, so far, nobody in features has shied away from me because I just had a baby. And on the pilot, they say, look, take your time on when you're going to turn in your outline. So that's been really interesting and I think part of it is my attitude towards it is I'm not slowing down so why should you slow me down that being said it has been brutal and uh, I've had a lot of medical complications from giving birth Mm -hmm. which has been brutal Mm -hmm. and I you know I was at the Critics Choice Awards and and you know I had my hair done and my makeup done and I, I borrowed a dress that covered the belly bump and Everybody was just like, oh, my God, how are you doing it? And how do you look like that? And I said, 
Well, what I wish is that I'd remember to bring my phone around with me for the next 30 minutes because that's reality. That red carpet was not reality. The reality was then my boobs started leaking because I'm breastfeeding and I couldn't get, it was porta potties and I couldn't get security to let me into a real bathroom. Oh. I spent, you know, 20 minutes pleading with security to get backstage so that I could pump in a real bathroom instead of a porta potty. And then essentially it was this sort of like dirty, dank bathroom. And I ultimately had to take off the designer gown because you don't want breast milk. So I'm standing there in my pantyhose and my pump and bra you know, my husband hasn't been allowed back with me and the door won't lock. So people are just walking in on me. And I thought, this is reality. Oh, my goodness. You know, this is what it actually is like right. as a working mom and a new mom. And then, you know, I was so exhausted. I barely made it through the award show. And yeah. um, I was like, this is this is what it really looks like. Right. Yeah. It's hard. It's rough. You run yourself down. And I pretty much just said, okay, the next two weeks have to just be about me and, and watching my health and being with my baby. And then I'll, you know, pick up in January. I say that, that being said, I have five different projects that I need to be prepped for the second week of January. Well, it sounds like you're going to have, you're going to make it. But, uh, so let's, let's close by talking <laughs> a little bit about that you wanted to direct. So, yes. so you studied writing and directing and at USC, when you were, you were in your class, was there equal number of women who wanted to direct or were learning to direct them men? We were. We were one of the only equal classes at USA. I think we were 45-55, which was mm -hmm. at the time I thought was normal, but was very, very rare. And I saw then the other, you know, classes cycle through and it was very heavy men. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you, you know, directing is still calling you? Absolutely. Okay. Oh, gosh. I'm not on a set where I don't want to get up and go give that actor. Or that DPN note. Are you kidding me? Are you going to write yourself something to direct? <laughs> I have uh, one of my first scripts I wrote was sort of an indie female stand by me that I made dust off and rewrite. I also have this mini series that I am just dying to make that I'd want to direct some of the episodes. And then, again, show running gets me a little bit of that because you get yeah. so much control. And so... Yes. I mean, I have a variety of projects I'm, I'm interested in directing. And I, and the other thing is I just speak up in every meeting, right? So every meeting I take now, I just say, hey, and I also want to direct because they're probably not going to let me direct these big movies I'm pitching on. But then if they're at a dinner party and those people are looking for an indie female director, maybe word will spread. So I think one of the biggest things I've learned in my career is don't be ashamed to ask what you want. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to direct, you want to produce. And it happened to me on Side Effects, the series I did for Austin's TV. I just said, look, I want to I want to be the executive producer. And they said, oh, we OK, great. <laughs> and I was. But yeah, no, I, I yes, I absolutely will direct. Is there any truth <laughs> to you wanting to write a Bond movie? Oh, heck yeah. Who wouldn't want to write a Bond movie? I think Sign you should me be up. pitching pitching to them. So is there any kind of advice that you'd like to give any writers? Slash directors, um, you, you've given so many, so much great advice during this conversation, but any kind of like pearls that you'd like to leave us with? Well, I think keep going is the biggest thing, yeah. right? Perseverance. And perseverance and know that I, I remember there was a period where I did 44 pitches and did not book a single one, mm -hmm. right? And you have to be willing to suffer through that and keep going. And it's not you. It's just this industry is really, really hard. 
And then the other thing is you just need to keep writing. There are so many quote unquote writers that I say, well, what have you written recently? And it's crickets. And I mean, I have a drawer full of unproduced, unbought scripts. I just in my spare time wrote a novel just to keep writing. So you have to write. If you're a writer, you have to write. And then I think the other thing is when you get in that room, make sure you know how to pitch and make sure you present yourself with confidence and ask for what you want and know when to stick to your guns and know when to uh, compromise because that's also a really important skill. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and we really appreciate it and wish you the best of luck on uh, Hidden Figures, which opens in um, New York and LA on Christmas Day and wider in early January. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. you. I hope you get some rest. Thank you, me too. (laughs) I appreciate it. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Women in Hollywood. For more podcasts and daily updates, please go to blog.womeninhollywood.com. For resources, to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, and to help support the work of Women in Hollywood, please go to our website, womenandhollywood.com. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Adam Shartoff. Music is by Laura Karpman.